questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Following the end of footsteps of a little-known group of esoteric seekers from the late 19th century, who call themselves the Miracle Club. Tonight's guest shows that the spiritual wish-fulfillment practices known as the Law of Attraction, Positive Thinking, The Secret, and The Science of Getting Rich actually work. Tonight, we'll discuss how your thoughts can impact reality and make things happen. His new book is titled The Miracle Club, How Thoughts Become Reality, where he includes crucial insights and effective methods for the movement's leaders such as Ralph Waldo Emerson, Napoleon Hill, Neville Goddard, William James, Andrew Jackson Davis, Wallace D. Waddles, and many others, defining a miracle as circumstances or events that surpass all conventional or natural expectation. Greetings, I'm your host, Mel Fabregas at Veritas Radio. If you want to listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, click on the subscribe button. Join me on Facebook and YouTube. And if you want to get in touch with me, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And to help you in your pursuit of miracles and achievement of power over your own life, tonight's special guest is Mitch Horowitz, a Penn Award-winning historian, longtime publishing executive, and a leading new thought commentator with bylines in the New York Times, Time, Politico, Salon, and The Wall Street Journal, and media appearances on Dateline, NBC, CBS Sunday Morning, All Things Considered, and Coast to Coast AM. He is the author of several books, including Occult America and One Simple Idea. Mitch Horowitz joins us directly from the Big Apple, New York City. Hello, Mitch, and welcome to Veritas. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Mel. Pleasure to be here. My pleasure. Well, as I was finishing your book, I realized you have other books that are different. You you seem to be very open-minded and, and carry a lot of information of different topics. But first, why did you name your book The Miracle Club? Well, it was named in homage to a group of people who are really my heroes. Uh, there was a small occult salon that gathered together on the west side of Manhattan, where I live, in the year 1875. And they determined to group together to explore life's mysteries. They were interested in seances and table wrapping and mediumship and the occult powers of the mind. And they only stayed together a very short time, but they formed the nucleus for a much larger and more influential group called the Theosophical Society, which will be familiar to some of your listeners. Uh, And of of, of course, Madame Blavatsky, Colonel Henry Steele Olcott, and some of their early members included Thomas Edison and Abner Doubleday. And they, of course, launched the whole revolution in alternative spirituality that swept the globe. Their earlier group, the first group, the Miracle Club, although it was around just a precious few months, it had such a spirit of experimentation and informality that I wanted to reach backwards and not only pay tribute to these people who were heroes of mine, but also to encourage us today to take up that spirit of personal experimentation, religious experimentation, spiritual experimentation that animated their efforts. And that's what I invite everybody to do in the Miracle Club. I think it's very important also to set the stage because when people read your book and they don't know who you are, they see somebody well-spoken, successful. I don't know why, but most people think, well, Mitch must have been born with a silver spoon. Yes. And that's not right. Before we get, I think it would be important, just share with us what you did to overcome adversities and your road to success. Sure. Uh, When I was a kid, I grew up in the borough of Queens in New York City. And Queens, for anybody listening who doesn't know, is an outer-lying borough of New York. When you grow up in Queens, you refer to Manhattan as the city. You feel like you're very far away from it. And uh, my mother was a medical secretary. My father was a legal aid attorney. He defended the poorest of the poor, and we ran into some very deep and desperate financial difficulties when I was a kid. My parents uh, split up. We were in danger of losing our home, and part of my way of dealing with this was to 
begin to dive into inspirational and motivational literature of all types, ranging from the Talmud to the works of Ralph Waldo Emerson to more contemporary works. And I came to feel that a person's thought does wield some measure of influence in a very concrete way over his circumstances. And I developed this interest early in adolescence, and I, I rediscovered it and really sustained it into adulthood. Now, you quote Helen Wilmans in your book, and Wilmans yes. wrote in her 1899 book, The Conquest of Poverty. Can a person, by holding certain thoughts, create wealth? Have you found the yes. answer? The answer I've found is that it is an absolute contributing factor. We live under many laws and forces, and life is a complexity of factors, but there is no question in my mind that the mind also possesses extra physical properties, that thoughts are causative, and everybody owes it to him or herself to view their minds as a tool of causation, a tool of actualization. Again, it's not the only influence in our lives, and it's not the only thing that's going on. I would never deny the persistence of economic factors, cultural factors, physical factors, and accidents, frankly. But the mind is one profoundly important, vital, and underappreciated tool that you possess, that's there for you at any given moment. And thoughts do contribute to the actual concretization of events in a way that goes beyond cognition and motor function. So the answer is a qualified yes. The answer is a qualified yes. And that's fantastic enough because we go through life just thinking of our minds as something that we use to make lists and to get from point A to point B. And it certainly is that, but it's also much, much more than that. And can the mind be a wealth building tool? The answer is yes. And I explore some of the methods in the book. It's not uh, the exclusive force in our lives. We don't live under one mental super law. Again, I can't emphasize enough that there are a complexity of laws and forces, but the mind is part of that complexity and we can learn to use it and we can exercise it and we can get better and better at it. And to achieve our goals, shouldn't our goals be realistic? I think this is a problem that a lot of people face. They don't seem to have realistic goals and shouldn't we have a clear and definite aim? Yeah, it's it, these are fascinating questions. You know, first of all, I'll answer the second one first. No single factor is of greater benefit to the individual in focusing the energies of his or her mind than having one definite absolute aim. It is the law of nature that concentration brings power. What is a laser other than concentrated light? Uh, anytime you find some sort of creative or destructive force in nature, you'll always find a concentration of forces, whether it's tectonic plates crashing against one another, whether it is the sun's rays focused on a certain spot and helping to gestate a seed. Concentration is power. It's a universal law. The same is true of our thoughts. And so I encourage people first and foremost, and this is probably the most vital single point in my work, if people take nothing else from it, act on this, have one single absolute goal. It's extraordinary. I know that we, we all live complex lives and we all feel multiple uh, needs and demands on our lives. I understand that and I feel the same thing. But regardless of that, nature makes a kind of tough but extraordinary bargain with us. And that is that you'll get exactly what you want or something very close to it. If, if you can focus your emotions, your mental energies and your passions on one key core goal, there's absolutely nothing else that is more effective in heightening the energies of your mind than having one definite aim. So I always tell people, If, if you want to walk, if you walk away from my work with only one point uh, on which you're willing to act, act on that one. It's, it's, it's probably the closest thing to a magic elixir that life grants to us. 
Mitch, I think you and I probably walked in two different places when before the Internet and after the Internet, before cell phones and so on. And growing up, I remember there were probably three, four channels on the TV. Right yeah. now, <laughs> kids and, and young adults have the at their disposal, you know, libraries. They can just find research at, at a thing in the fingertips. At the same time, I talk to a lot of friends who want to succeed, and they tell me, I just can't focus. It's almost as if I have a computer with 50 windows open. It's almost like you're on a radio and you're just turning the dial every few seconds. It's very difficult to focus these days. Is it easier to succeed today than it was, say, 30, 40 years ago? Well, that's interesting. I mean, for me, Social media is a mixed blessing, as it is for all of us, but at the same time, it's helped me to reach audience members all over the world. It's been extraordinary for me. I think that regardless of the era that one grew up in, regardless of the technology that's available to you or that you choose to use or not use, no single force is in your life is greater than passion. Having a passion for one thing will tend to clear away all kinds of detritus and unnecessary things in your life, including, frankly, relationships that are unnecessary. When you become focused on one aim, you don't waste a lot of time uh, watching television or doing things that just distract you for hours and hours on end. You don't waste a lot of time in small talk. You tend to focus your life on your work and on people you love. And again, that one-pointed focus is just a, a, of immeasurable importance. Uh, if you have that, then technology and the other distractions of life begin to recede into the distance or they become productive tools. I believe me, I don't sit around on Twitter and Facebook circulating memes of, you know, funny kittens and things like that. <laughs> Although I love cats, don't get me wrong, but I just don't have time for frivolity. I don't watch uh, videos. I don't uh, spend time on social media unless it pertains to something that I really care about. Um, it, it, you know, having a, a passionate aim tends to it, it clarifies, it clarifies. When people are procrastinating, it's either because they're they're in fear or they're in boredom. And when you have a real aim, uh, you suffer from neither. Now, what a, those were great words. You're either in fear or in boredom. Which yeah. of the two do you think that most people face today? That's a wonderful question. It's funny in a way because you look at the problem of procrastination, for example, which a lot of people complain about. Procrastination is basically a form of fear. So my guess would be that most people probably suffer from from fear above all else. And fear leads to boredom because fear will take you away from doing your essential work in life. And that's when you find yourself just piddling away your time, uh, engaged in time killing exercises, useless exercises online. And it's funny, you know, boredom can also lead you to fear because boredom is actually very dangerous. Boredom is a dangerous and unlucky state to be in because when you're bored, you tend to take risks or get involved in frivolous or wasteful activities that can play havoc with your life, like getting involved with online gambling or substance abuse or things like that. You know, boredom is, is, is almost its own pathology that can circle you back around to fear. The two are like a, a negative yin yang. And I, I think one has to be very careful when you're in a state of boredom because it can lead you to doing reckless things. It's not a natural state. It's a state that we crave relief from, I think. And uh, sometimes we confuse and conflate boredom and fear. They are both related in a certain way because they both um, they both promote inactivity. They, they promote idleness because they're keeping you from doing something essential in life. Well, another problem I see, Mitch, is the notion of immediate gratification. We're almost in today's day and age. We want everything right now. And you yes. see companies morphing into these companies. I mean, look at, well, Amazon. 
Now you have yeah. a same day service. In the past, I loved it. Just, you know, lick my envelope with my little money order, check or <laughs> cash, and wait six weeks for my record to arrive. So yes. immediate gratification, uh, uh, pain, avoidance of pain, uh, people that cannot be sad. Uh, aren't these regular, normal emotions? We just need to deal with them the right and normal way. Yes, it's interesting. And believe me, I'm the worst offender. I mean, I can sit there ordering things on Amazon that it never would have dawned on me that I needed were it not for the oh, fact me that too. it's just a click away. Um, in effect, everything in our society conspires to rob us uh, of the capacity of patience. Everything, as you've alluded, is a, a kind of just-in-time gratification. And when you're really using your mental energies and working towards something in life, you need persistence. You need patience. These are not just old-fashioned virtues that we like to talk about, but they're vital stepping stones. If you're an artist, if you're a student, if you're a soldier, if you're a teacher, whatever it is that you're doing in life, if you're trying to attain some kind of distinction, you need a great deal of perseverance, not only to hone your craft and become excellent at what you do, but to push past temporary setbacks, which are going to uh, greet you uh, with some regularity. Now, sometimes within the new thought field and other spiritual movements, people will counsel the need for faith and talk about the importance of having faith. And there are times where I find faith personally speaking, a very fuzzy concept, a, a difficult concept to, to grasp and to describe. But it occurred to me that when you encounter the word faith, you could almost always substitute in the word persistence or perseverance. And the meaning is unaltered. So if you have trouble, as I do, relating to the term faith, think of faith as, as persistence. Because persistence will essentially accomplish the same thing. And if you want to harness your mental energies and if you want to achieve goals in life, uh, persistence is, next to having a definite aim, persistence is probably the most important factor. Well, faith, persistence, perseverance, and if I might, I'll add intention, which carries yes. energy and intent. Isn't that part of the energy in order to achieve a goal? Absolutely. Absolutely. All these things are really effects that grow out of possessing a passionate goal, a passionate wish, a passionate desire. And I think all of us have one, but sometimes we feel it's not actionable. In fact, you had you had posed the question earlier must a goal be actionable, you know? And, and, and of course the answer is yes. You don't want to be indulging in idle daydreams or chimeras or fantasies. New thought as a movement, and, and by new thought I mean the positive mind movement, the movement that has as its central principle thoughts are causative, a principle I very deeply agree with. New thought often counsels people that the mind is limitless, that anything that you can picture, you can achieve. And I agree with that up to a point, up to a point. I would add to that, that an aim, a goal, an intention, in order for it to be authentic, it must be actionable, even if it's in some small way. There should be something that you can do, some step forward that you can take uh, towards the furtherance of your aim. If there's absolutely nothing realistic that you can do, then I would question whether it's an authentic goal, whether it's an authentic aim, or it's just a daydream. And again, the way you can always test it is by asking yourself, is there something I can do today in the here and now that will contribute to the furtherance of this goal? Uh, if there's training that's required can I get the training? Can I begin to research how to get the training? Is there some rehearsal or drilling or steps that I can take that'll put me in the right direction? Are there people uh, to whom I can speak? If you can't really think of any steps that you can take in the direction of your aim, it's probably not authentic. Not that I'm any close to Nikola Tesla, but I remember reading somewhere years ago where 
he used to envision the finished product of whatever he was conceptualizing in his mind, and then he would work backwards. Do that's you think that's a, that's a good strategy? Uh, yes, I do. In, in some regards, I spent my whole life doing that. You know, I, I didn't publish my first books until I was past the age of 40. And I always like to point that out to people because I wasn't some whiz kid who was on this career track very early on. Um, I really, really didn't come into my career as a writer, speaker, narrator until I was entering middle age. And I would say up to that point in my life, in addition to a great deal of sweat equity, I always had that that end point in mind. I always had the byline in mind. I always had um, the idea of books and lectures and narration and television presentation and other things that I wanted to do firmly fixed like a kind of North Star for me. And then I suppose you could say like Tesla, I kind of worked backwards from there. Uh, and no one should make any mistake about the degree of sweat equity that goes into that. Uh, a figure like Nikola Tesla, of course, was absolutely tireless. The man would work to the point of physical exhaustion, as would Thomas Edison. And that is uh, that, that, that level of sweat equity helps to populate your dreams and your aims and your wishes as much as your passion. The two go hand in hand. I have encountered and retell in the book extraordinary stories, extraordinary stories about people who have visualized things and gotten precisely what they wanted. And these are absolutely true stories that I stand by with total commitment. But I must always remind people that hand in hand with the visualization that came true was a great deal of sweat equity, great deal of sweat equity. There's one story I tell in the book that was told to me by the great ESP researcher, Dean Radin, who's a close friend of mine. And Dean maintains an extremely important uh, clinical ESP lab in Northern California, which some of your listeners know. Of course. It's the in Institute of Noetic Sciences. I do Yes. And Dean was telling me just a fascinating story about how he was gathering data uh, as part of an experiment in precognition. And he had gathered a vast, vast amount of data that he now needed to figure out how to organize. And he determined that there was a certain computer program uh, that he could use that would serve to organize this data for him. But he had a couple of problems. One was that he didn't have the time to learn the ins and outs of the program and to learn the language that was used to run the program. That was problem number one. Problem number two was that he had just an enormous amount of data and he needed help. He needed somebody with a legitimate academic background in neuroscience who could help him with the organization and input of this data. And he didn't know what to do. You know, he was really stuck. He didn't have a large budget to hire somebody and he, he couldn't complete his experiment without help in these two different areas. So he was trying to figure out what to do and he was pondering applying for a grant or maybe looking into the possibility of getting a graduate student somewhere in the neurosciences who would help him for free. He also not only needed an expert in the field, but he needed somebody who was willing to associate him or herself with psychical research, which remains a controversial field and not everybody in academia, obviously, is willing to be associated with it. So he had a host of problems and he was trying to figure out how to solve them. And an assistant of his said to him, listen, you have to stop thinking about the means to solving your problem. You're talking about grants. You're talking about finding a graduate student. Don't concentrate on the means to solving your problem. What's the thing that you really want? What's, what's the end point? What are you looking for? And he said, well, what I'm looking for is somebody who knows this computer language and somebody with an academic background in neuroscience who can help me out with this. And he, he fixed himself very clearly on this point. He needed an expert or experts who could do this for him, whatever the means. That's what he needed. Very, very soon thereafter, a man came to visit his lab, wanting to tour his facilities. 
he was a tenured professor in neuroscience from the University of Toulouse in France. And he put to Dean the proposition that he wanted to volunteer in his lab for free. He wanted to help him with his research. And Dean told him about his current project. Not only did this man know the language of the program that Dean wanted to use to organize his data, but he was the actual person who wrote the program. His name is in the book. And he had academic credentials in neuroscience from the University of Toulouse, where he was a professor. And he was willing to work for free. They continue to be close colleagues to this day. So he not only found someone who had the credentials and who had the background and who was willing to contribute his services, but he was the one who actually wrote the coding language that Dean needed to use to organize all of his data. It was absolutely extraordinary. And Dean told me that he has had several such episodes in life where as soon as he got really clear on precisely what he wanted, it came to him. And I repeat that story in detail in the book, but I have to add or at least emphasize this one point. Anybody who knows Dean knows that he, like Nikola Tesla, has worked extremely hard. The level of seriousness and sweat equity that he's put into his work over these many years cannot be underestimated. It is uh, a, a level of work that's virtuistic. So clarity and focus and intention will work for you. But the demand that is required of us in order to harness those energies is passion and sweat equity. Then the miraculous can happen. And what happened to Dean was indeed a minor miracle. I think he would agree with that. This reminds me of the book, The Science of the Paranormal. Do you think Dean actually attracted the perfect candidate by manifesting reality, by his thoughts? And, you know, more and more, I think, Mitch, that I think there's something out there, call it the universe, fill oh, in yes, the blanks, yes. that conspires with us to achieve our goals. I agree with that entirely. I, I would say two things in response to that. The first is, I personally do not use the term manifest. I tend to favor the term select. I think we select more than we manifest. And I think one of the things, one of the lessons I take from Dean's precognition experiments, and I write about this in, in the Miracle Club, based upon serious experiments in precognition, quantum theory, interdimensionality, retrocausality, other fields of study, I think that we live within an infinitude of possibilities and that when we make a choice, when we harbor an expectation, when we sustain an emotionalized thought, it's almost like we're drawing a matrix grid on top of this infinitude of possibilities and we're pinpointing one experience that we effectively select. This is what people call manifesting, but I think, at least in my theory of why positive thinking works, I think of it as an act of selection from among an infinitude of possibilities. I think that's part of what was going on with Dean. I think another part of, of the equation is that, to some extent, uh, all of this constructive thinking, all of this positive thinking has a quality of telepathy involved with it. There's absolutely no question, and, and I say this based upon what is now probably more than 80 years of serious clinical experimentation into ESP here in the U.S., beginning with the work of the great J.B. Ryan at Duke University and continuing in our time through the work of people like Dean Radin and Daryl Bem. We have enormous amounts of laboratory data that attests to the ability of human beings to exchange and transfer information in extra-physical ways and manners, in ways that expand beyond the five senses that we ordinarily use or at least ordinarily experience. And I think that part of what's happening when we are engaged in sustained emotionalized thought 
when we are engaged in focused thought is that we are sending out a kind of a signal, so to speak, looking for people who can meet us halfway, who can lend us a hand, who can be of assistance. And there's no question in my mind that as soon as Dean attained great clarity on what he was looking for, he entered into a zone of anomalous transfer of information, and he was able to reach out, in effect, to someone else who, in this case, was in close proximity, who shared similar interests. I think that was part of the equation of how these two people got brought together so quickly after Dean had gained clarity on precisely what he wanted. I think the key word of what you just said is sustained. Having sustained thoughts without distractions uh, these days seems more difficult by the day. I even wrestle with that on a daily basis. Yes, it is difficult. I mean, everything in our consumer society conspires to take our attention, conspires to rob us of our sense of quietude. This is why it's it's critical that anybody who's experimenting with mind metaphysics have some kind of a meditative practice. And there's actually a piece of good news here, which I write about in the book, which is that in effect, in effect, each one of us does already enter into a kind of meditative state every day uh, just before falling asleep at night. Sleep, sleep researchers refer to this as the hypnagogic state. The hypnagogic state really involves those exquisitely relaxed few minutes just before you drift off to sleep at night. And I regard that as prime time, in effect, to use visualizations, use affirmations. Sleep researchers have found that those few moments of hypnagogia are a period of exquisite suggestibility. They're a period of time when your thoughts can impact the subconscious with a really unique uh, degree of influence, and, and your mind is in a highly suggestible state. In fact, during this state of hypnagogia, you can experience almost waking dreams and hallucinations. Reality seems to bend as if you're looking at the images in a Salvador Dali painting where landscapes converge and clocks and timepieces bend, and yet you remain in control over your cognition. You remain capable of directing your attention. So you can use affirmations, you can use visualizations, you can decide upon a certain mental focus, and clinical ESP researchers have also found that this state of hypnagogia, this sort of borderland between sleep and wakefulness, has proven in lab settings to be prime time for telepathic activity. Uh, psychical researchers have discovered that if you can induce a person into a comfortable state of hypnagogia, you might put them into an easy chair, give them a pair of headphones that emit white noise, give them a pair of eye shades, put them in a setting of comfortable sensory deprivation, that such subjects score a higher hit rate on ESP tests. It seems to heighten the capacity for ESP or telepathy in the individual. So there's all kinds of things that are going on in this near sleep state that we occupy that have intrigued sleep researchers, that have intrigued psychical researchers. And by instinct, some of the pioneers of the New Thought movement, including the French mind theorist Emile Coué, have recommended, sometimes going back a whole century, have recommended using that pre-sleep state as a period of time for suggestions, mantras, visualizations. So I encourage everybody to have a steady meditation practice. But even if you don't, even if you don't, or even if you find meditation difficult, which of course some people do, Everyone, everyone enters this state of hypnagogia just before drifting off to sleep at night. And we re-enter it just as we're coming to wakefulness in the morning. Use that time. Use that time. I, I literally never go to sleep at night 
without using that period of hypnagogia to gently repeat affirmations to myself or to use visualizations. It's critically important. So even in the world where all of our quietness, uh, all of our uh, sense of internal calm is constantly uh, being robbed away from us by this flood of ambient light and digital distractions and all the noise that surrounds us and so on. Even in this noisy, frenetic 21st century world, this 24-7 digitally connected world, you still have those, those precious few minutes just before you drift to sleep at night. Value them. Value them. That's prime time for people to use their affirmations and visualizations. I like the hypno, uh, hypnagogic uh, hallucinations, if you will, that that period. Yes. But I also like what they call the hypnopompic stage, yes. <laughs> right? Which yes. is uh, right in the morning, just before your alarm clock will ring. Stay right. there. Stay there and start those affirmations again because now you're ready to start the day. That's right. And obviously some of us need an alarm clock to wake up, and that's just a fact of life. But if you can do without it, do without it, because when you enter that state in the morning of hypnopompia, which is a little different from the hypnagogic state, but it shares the basic state of consciousness. This, this again, this very supple, very suggestible, almost hallucinatory state, where nonetheless you have a, 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 a cognition, you have control over the direction of your attention and your awareness. Try, if possible, to do away with the alarm clock and allow yourself to experience those few minutes. And when you're experiencing those few minutes, again, every morning, every morning, set the intention of what you want your day to be like. Use a visualization, use an affirmation. This is a steady practice that I do every night and every morning in the early morning hours. And you know, it's quite fascinating. When people are suffering from grief or depression, they very often report that the early morning hours are the toughest time of day. And I believe that's because it is a period of time, hypnagogia, hypnopompia, are periods of time in which our rational defenses are down. So if there's something that we're afraid of or something that is depressing to us or causing grief or causing anxiety, it can loom very, very largely. I have friends who tell me that the early wee hours of the morning are a time of day when they feel very frightened. They're thinking about the work day that's in front of them. Everything seems larger than life. Reality kicks in. Yeah. And then when they wake up and they actually go about their business, they find that some of the dragons of their subconscious some of the dragons of their fantasies are not so fearsome after all, but they seem larger than life at such times because our rational defenses are down. But you can also use these times of day. You can use these times of day to your advantage. The very fact that your rational defenses are down means that it's much easier to introduce a psychological suggestion to yourself. Some people complain that they will psychologically rebel against an affirmation or a visualization that seems unrealistic. And that is a problem. But the states of hypnagogia, hypnopompia, again, just before drifting to sleep at night, just before coming to full wakefulness in the morning, because your rational defenses are down at such time, it's much easier to introduce suggestions to your psyche, to your subconscious, to reprogram yourself in effect. Uh, Emile Coué, who I mentioned earlier, the French mind theorist, he really thought of the use of suggestions and visualizations as self-hypnosis. Now, I agree with that, but I think there's something more going on because I also think there are extra physical dimensions to what we're doing and there are creative dimensions to what we're doing. But regardless, these are wonderful times of day to, in effect, give yourself suggestions that will lead to greater confidence, greater personal aptitude, and something more, and something more. Because I do think that there is an extra physical quality to the mind that involves communicating with other minds and selecting from events among an infinitude 
of possibilities. So my point is that when your rational defenses are down, uh, rather than just kind of giving into that and allowing the gremlins of your psyche to run wild, use that time. Use that time to affirm, to suggest, to visualize, because it's a it's a time of exquisite uh, suggestibility. It's a time when your mind is exquisitely supple. And again, it's always there. No real effort is involved. If you sleep, you go through these stages. Another weapon, if you will, or tool to yes. to uh, stop the monkey mind, to tame the monkey mind. And I believe you, you're a practitioner of this, is a transcendental meditation or any type of med meditation. Does that help yes. on someone's journey? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I firmly believe that undertaking any kind of inner search uh, begins with uh, some kind of a meditative practice. I think it's profoundly important that everybody have a daily meditative practice. It's, it's the foundation of the inner search. Now, my practice, as you mentioned, is transcendental meditation, and that's a mantra-based form of meditation that's extremely relax, uh, uh, relaxing, which I, I practice uh, for about 20, 25 minutes in the morning, another 20 to 25 minutes in the evening. And I actually find that the mantra that gets provided to you in transcendental meditation does put you in this extremely relaxed physical and mental state that's somewhat akin to hypnagogia. And I use that time as well for visualizations, uh, mental visualizations primarily. And I think that virtually any meditative state that puts you into a, a place of heightened relaxation can be combined with meditations, affirmations. You might want to bring in affirmations just at the very end as you're coming out of it. Uh, TM has been my choice, and, and, and I certainly endorse it, but any kind of meditative practice uh, is, is good as long as you do it, as long as you do it. It's, it's, it's vital to the inner search. And I think the following statement I'm going to read has to do with the being realistic. So, you know, this is not, not uh, I'm not directing any, any anger at you, but listen to this. This statement from your book caught me by surprise. You said, contrary to many purveyors of spiritual self-help, I reject the notion that we can become anything we dream of. Yeah. But you also say not all desires are realistic. And I totally agree with the latter. But why do you reject the notion that we can become anything that we dream of? Is it because sometimes... It's unrealistic? Yes. I, I think that, obviously, age and geography and natural ability are going to play some role in what we're able to accomplish in life. I'm 52 years old. If I declared that I wanted to join the NBA, that's a daydream. That's not going to happen. <laughs> but, but, you know, or if somebody made the case to me that it could happen, they would need to lay out that case for me. You know, I might have questions about, well, you know, how will I get the training? Am I in a position to get the training? And, and you know, there's all kinds of questions about how and whether you can attain the necessary tools to embark on something. And as I was mentioning earlier, a person would have to demonstrate to me that he or she could take certain steps in a certain direction that would begin in however modest a way to actualize his or her aim. So again, a real aim is not an idle daydream. A real aim is something that, it's a, that is attainable even if it's very, very far off. I want to see people get someplace in life. So, you know, if I dream of slaying dragons, no dragons have been found recently. I, I, I'd have to ask people, is that escapism or is that an aim? And, and my wish is for people to find an aim. And it's interesting we're talking about this because I think of two examples of, I have a friend who had a friend growing up when they were young and they were just talking on the streets one day and, They were talking about what they wanted to become when they, they were adults. And one said, I want to become a billionaire. And the other mm -hmm. one said, I want to be happy. Mm -hmm. Well, the one who turned out to be a billionaire became a billionaire. Mm -hmm. None of his children talk to him today. That's has been divorced several times. Yeah. The other one became successful. Not as successful as the other one financially, but he's yeah. very happy. 
Interesting. Interesting. I mean, it's, it's, of course, what you're pointing out is a very important principle. And yet, one of the things that I say in the book is that I do honor people's material aims and wishes. I do feel that it's vital and it's fundamental in all of our lives to be productive and to be generative. And I, I, I honor, I honor the aim of any individual provided it's ethical and it's passionate. And by ethical, what I really mean is that an individual not do something that will violate someone else's ability to attain his or her own highest sense of aspiration. But I've reached the point where in my own search, I've stopped drawing lines between attachment and non-attachment, material and spiritual identification and non-identification, inner and outer. It's all one life. It's all one whole. And if we take seriously the contention that men and women are made in the image of the creator or to use the great hermetic principle as above, so below, which I think is really the great principle of life, the great kind of cosmic uh, descriptor of our lives. I think that it, it stands to reason that we are here to function as creators within our own sphere of influence. We're here to be productive. We're here to be generative. So that might take one person in the direction of the arts, another person in the direction of finance, another person in the direction of um, some sort of uh, graduate studies or scholarly pursuit, another person toward the professions, or none of those, or none of those. All these things are highly individualized. But my wish is that the individual, above all, find within his or her life a sense of personal productivity and creativity and generativity. Without that, I don't think the seeker will ever truly be happy. So I honor individual aspiration. I view, as long as it's sincere, as long as it's passionate and as long as it's ethical, by which I mean not violating another person's capacity to pursue his or her own aspiration, I think human aspiration, human ambition is sacred. And I've stopped drawing divisions among these things in my own search. I think the, the point is to function at the highest level of one's own uh, generative abilities and capacities. This is very interesting because I wanted to leave this part for later, the ethics of getting rich. But yes. since we're talking about, uh, I mentioned the, the person who wanted to become a billionaire. And by the way, I'm not a frowning upon a, that sure. at all. If anybody you. wants to become a billionaire, you know, I don't know. But these days, there's this undercurrent, correct me if I'm wrong, where ambition seems to be frowned upon almost as as selfish or immoral. And again, I have no problem with an ambitious person achieving his or her goals as long as it's done morally. Yes, yes. My ethic is that if you embark on a path of mind metaphysics, if you commit to this path, as I have and as I, as I write about in the book, it's vital to have some sort of a ethical or religious teaching at your back, whether it be the Beatitudes or the Bhagavad Gita or the Tao Te Ching or the meditations of Marcus Aurelius, it's really crucial to have some set of ethical guardrails by which to live. Uh, I, and I, I think that otherwise this really can descend into almost a kind of violent search for self. And by violent, I don't mean physically violent, but um, it can be very easy to cross over into violating the the rights and the abilities, the birthright, really, of others to pursue their own highest sense of self. And I think that we are really placed here uh, to face demands that are both of a material nature and a transcendent nature. And what we owe to others is not to do anything that strip them of or or divert them from their own ability to develop their personal capacities as we wish to develop ours. If you can really validate to yourself that you are functioning along nonviolent lines, 
then I think that there's absolutely no wish, no ambition, no aspiration that you have to excuse away or that you have to feel embarrassed about or that you have to feel you need to ask someone's permission for, whether it's being a billionaire or being a monk, you know, whether it's being a scholar or being a soldier. I think any aim in life is valid provided it is conducted uh, with a sense of sanctity towards other people, with a sense of owing to other people the very thing that you want from them, which is the uh, freedom of self-aspiration. I always say that the biggest conspiracy of all is the secret to our own potential. And as you say, yes. it doesn't matter. Last place we look. <laughs> exactly. And it doesn't matter what you do to achieve your goals as long as it's done ethically. And yes. I don't violate or get in the middle of your road to that journey. Yes. And, you know, some people get angry at me when I say this, but I say it with hopes that it'll be of use to people. You know, I question some of these old truisms and old expressions that run through our culture. One is um, that no one on his or her deathbed ever wishes that they had spent more time at the office. I'm not so sure that's true, frankly. I think well-roundedness in a certain sense is overrated insofar as having one passionate goal can bring tremendous meaning and purpose to someone's life. Now, it doesn't necessarily have to mean spending more time at the office per se, but it could mean on the martial arts desk, um, uh, on the playing field of a sport, uh, at the writing desk, in front of a potter's wheel. It could mean any number of things. But I think, quite frankly, that the regrets that most people feel as life winds down is perhaps that they didn't take the risk of sort of diving fully into the abyss of possibility and dedicating their time and their energies to everything that they wanted to accomplish. So I actually feel that when we are fully employed in and dedicated to our work, whatever it may be, whatever it may be, those are some of the most vital, vivifying experiences of our lives. So I would say to your listeners, don't slice and dice up your dreams and ambitions, amb ambitions in some melancholic way. Don't feel that you you owe somebody an apology or you 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 have to feel embarrassed about uh, pursuing your deepest wishes. Um, I think that that feelings of selfhood and aliveness come uh, when we're working. Uh, in a very unique and, and special way. So again, to my mind, ambition, attainment, these things are sacred. They're part of, they're part of the most essential sense of what it means to be human. They're part of the most essential sense of what it means to be fashioned in the image of the creator. If one takes that principle seriously. Let's stay on this for a minute regarding the person who, who said, uh, there are nobody their deathbed it, it thinks about it having enjoyed spending time in the office. But what if that person who spent time at the office made a vacation of his or her vocation and truly enjoyed every minute in the office? Oh, yeah, I think that's quite wonderful. I mean, frankly, uh, that's been my experience of life. I never stop working. And, you know, one could look at me and say, boy, that guy is really lopsided. He needs to unplug. He needs to relax. But the truth is, you'll never find me more relaxed. You'll never find me more at ease than when I'm engaged in the kind of exchange that you and I are having right now. You know, last night I was speaking at a Masonic Hall here in New York City, and uh, it's not work at all. The time just just melts away when I'm writing, when I'm speaking, when I'm narrating, when I'm having a discussion like the one that you and I are having. It's wonderful. I can honestly say I like the warm weather. I like the tropics. But if I was on vacation, I'd want to be doing nothing more than what you and I are doing right now. Yes, I'd like to be sitting under a palm tree rather than in the cold weather in New York City. But I happen to be in New York City, so I'll live with that. But nothing is more relaxing to me than so-called work. And that same possibility exists for everyone if if we can find work that employs our passions. Because once it employs our passions, we enter into 
a state of absolute vitality, and it doesn't feel like work at all. That's been my experience. I remember many years ago, before I started this venture, the radio program, uh, somebody told me that Native Americans, when they need to have rain drop, if they, they have a drought, the way they do it, when you see them dancing, they're not just dancing. They actually feel that the raindrops are touching their bodies and kines almost kinesthetically, they're feeling yes. it. And all of a sudden, yes. as I said, universe, fill in the blanks, something happens that conspires to make that into action. So I thought yes. about that and the whole notion, I want to become a radio host one day. I imagine myself sitting down, talking to somebody like you with a microphone, having people all over the, over the world listening. And guess what? It just... I say materialized, but you say it was selected. Selected, yes, yes. That's beautifully put. And I, I've never heard that about the rain dance ritual before, and it makes perfect sense because it, think of it. It employs the whole psyche. The individual doing the rain dance, as, he was just, as you're describing it, is employing his or her mentality, physicality, emotions, tactile sense it's a totalizing experience and all the methods that i explore in the book are really about trying to attain that totalized experience that's the state of selectiveness that's the state where we can start to determine what we actually experience the thought just came to mind do you think that a thought carries carries electricity and perhaps this is why all these things, these things happen because there's some kind of electricity taking place well it's interesting you know for years and years the great psychical researcher jb ryan who did wonderful esp studies at duke university was asked to come up with a theory of esp come up with a theory of why one individual should be able to convey thought to another or why one individual should be able to demonstrate the capacity to glean information in a way that went beyond the five senses. And I sort of took up that challenge as my own with respect to positive thinking. I felt I needed to come up with some sort of a theory that at least could be discussed, debated, considered as to why anything should happen at all apropos of our sustained thoughts and I, I I don't quite see it myself as electricity or as magnetism or as vibration again I come back to this idea and I think this is true for ESP as well including experiences of precognition or premonition I think that life plays out in an infinitude I think everything is happening at once. Everything occupies a kind of state of superposition. And when we select an experience by way of our perspective, our emotions, our thoughts, then some point that existed in a wave of possibility collapses to a point of localization. Again, it's like drawing a matrix grid and pinpointing one thing out of an infinitude of possibilities and perspective i believe can function that way and once we pinpoint that one thing we experience it so that's that's my at least my theory at least my theory for what's going on with all this uh, positive thinking if anything is going on at all i was thinking instead of electricity i was thinking more of what tesla said if you want to learn the secret of the universe think in terms of And what is it? Energy, energy, frequency, and vibration. Yes, that's very interesting. Very, very interesting. And, you know, in a certain sense, um, energy, frequency, all these things could be seen as interchangeable with what we refer to as intention, passion, focus. You know, what is frequency but a kind of focus? What is vibration but a kind of uh, emotive thought, uh, a thought that can be held very passionately and very intensely? Uh, you know, this is similar to what, what we were discussing earlier, comparing faith to persistence or to perseverance. 
the effect of all these things is the same. One person might call it persistence, one person might call it faith, but the effect is the same. Whether one says frequency, whether one says focus, we're really talking about what state of mental attunement and awareness a person is in. So, you know, it's, it's all of these things are different terms uh, for the same effects, basically. Well, folks, this is a very important conversation, especially as we begin the new year. We'll dive deeper during part two. Mitch, how can people buy the new book and all your other books? Oh, well, you can purchase them online at Amazon or through any other online bookseller, barnesandnoble.com, from your independent bookseller. And if you would like a signed copy of The Miracle Club, personalized by me, uh, you can send $25 to me uh, through PayPal to my email address to mitch.horowitz.nyc at gmail.com. That's mitch.horowitz.nyc gmail.com. And I will send you by first class mail a personally signed copy. Well, folks, don't go anywhere. The Miracle Club, how thoughts become reality. Again, we'll discuss so much more and a lot of examples on how you can do this. This is Mel Fabregas. My guest today is Mitch Horowitz. You're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first part of this very important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the members section or subscribe at VeritasRadio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for MMS, hemp oil, pure organic sulfur, and other great products. Thank you.